Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Batman Nightcast, the podcast that chronicles Batman's comic book adventures since 1986 during the post-crisis on Infinite Earths era of DC Comics. I'm Chris Franklin. Oh, oh yeah, I forgot to I forgot to wake him up. Uh, let me use a little bit of the bat wake here. Ryan? Hey, Ryan. Oh, Reese, Reese, what is it? Hey, hey, Ryan. It's it's me, Chris. Um, sorry about that. I, I, I hated to abduct you away from fatherhood for a minute, but... But people need Nightcast. We've got to do it. (laughs) I'm so tired. (sighs) Okay, I guess I can come back. This isn't going to be like changing diapers, is it? No, no, no. I I, I changed my own. It's okay. Uh, (laughs) I need you back because we've got a little bit of a problem since you've been gone. I don't know if you noticed, but it looks like somebody's been squatting in our bat cave. (laughs) Are you... You're referring to other people poaching our territory in terms of Batman coverage and stories set in the post-crisis world? Well, I, yeah, because there's there's like fish and chips all over the place <laughs> and half-eaten apples and pears. And, and there's boxes and boxes of office supplies, which is cool because, I mean, we can use more office supplies, but it's just weird. I don't understand it. Oh, I, I think there's enough love for these Batman stories to go around. Well, as long as they clean up after themselves, I don't really care. You know, just yeah. yeah. <laughs> In their defense, they might have thought I was never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't know I would abduct you and bring you back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we had to come back because we left people hanging with a huge cliffhanger from Detective Comics number 573. In that issue, Batman and Robin were fighting the Mad Hatter. And a rooftop battle resulted in Batman punching the Mad Hatter and his gun going off. When Batman turned around to talk to Robin, poor Jason was laid out with at least one bullet wound. We'll soon discover how many. (laughs) Uh, And so poor Jason's been bleeding out for months now. So we have to jump into Detective Comics number 574, which was cover dated May 1987. And it was on sale February 26, 1987, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Okay, let's talk about the cover. His head hanging low, the silhouetted form of Batman carries the lifeless body of his warden partner, Robin, through the rain, leaving behind the smoke and fire they have emerged from. A single trickle of blood can be seen running across Robin's red tunic. The cover is, of course, by Alan Davis and Paul Neri. What do you think of this one, Ryan? Uh, it's a striking image. I mean, it's it's an image that will be sort of – that has been done before and since. It's, it's kind of a, a popular image of a character holding a beloved one who's – I mean, it's hard to look at this and not compare it to an image that we'll see a year from now or so in uh, Death and the Family. The idea of the image is great. It's iconic. It's classic. It will become something that we're very familiar with. Yeah, I don't know if the, the colors that I've seen Batman too blacked out, too shadowy, but seeing kind of like a perfect representation of Robin, like all in the colors. And at least on my version, we get uh, sort of multiple just black lines that could be blood trails, but it's it's hard to see. And his eyes seem very open, even though it's wearing the domino mask, so it's kind of hard to read them. But you don't really necessarily get a sense of whether his eyes are open or closed from that. I like the idea. Maybe it's something where I would have rather seen it in black and white, but it could just be the, the color version that I'm looking at. What do you think? Yeah, I can I can kind of see the Robin Robin's colors, you know, kind of do just pop out. It almost it, I mean, one thing I really like is that even though you don't see Batman's face, his body language just says defeat. You know, 
Uh, I think that's really, really well done. But yeah, his the yeah the coloring on Robin. I think maybe too if they. I mean, I know they can't get away at this point with a lot of blood on the cover. But yeah, it is. It's almost like there's like a little orange strip of a little bit of color going across and a couple lines to il- illustrate blood. But you kind of you know where he's got a red tunic on. They should have went with like a darker red. Of, of the blood coming out or something. Maybe they couldn't get away with that at the time with a comics code. I'm not sure. But yeah, I, I can see. I, I think the cover is fairly iconic, but I think it's more because it represents what's to come more than <laughs> more than this yeah. storyline. Yeah. <laughs> if there's one cover that sort of defines this era, it feels like this one is going to be pretty representative of a lot of Jason Todd stories. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it. it in fact, uh, my son Andrew walked by when this was laying out, and he's like, "Whoa, wait a minute, what's this?" And I said, "No, that's not a death in the family." And he's like, "Oh, okay, okay." But he thought, you know, he thought it was like some, I guess, some version of the story that he hadn't read before or something. <laughs> so, so there you go. I mean, that just, yeah, this uh, this story kind of gets uh, in the epic historical connotations of that story. This one gets lost in the shuffle, but the cover definitely points towards it. So. Okay, after since we've looked at the cover, why don't we take a quick promo break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the story inside Detective Comics number 574. Don't go away. Ah, after a long day of criminal activity, there's nothing I like better than to sit down and listen to the old radio. Wait a minute, that's not a radio, it's... Plastic Man! Plastic Man! Plastic Man! That's right, it's the Plastic Cast, a brand new podcast dedicated to Plastic Man. I'm your host, Max Romero. Together we'll be talking about Plastic Man in the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and every other age you can think of, right up to his upcoming reappearance in DC Rebirth. We'll also be talking about any Plastic Man news that might be coming up, and his appearances in every media from comics to cartoons. Makes me woozy just to think about it. I hope you'll join me to talk about the longest arm of the law here on the Plastic Cast here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Plastic Man! Plastic Man! My Beginning and My Probable End was written by Mike W. Barr. Alan Davis and Paul Neri were the artists. Richard Starkings was the letterer. Adrian Roy, the colorist. And Denny O'Neill, editor. 25 years earlier, the neighborhood known as Park Row was where the well-to-do of Gotham City gathered to eat and seek entertainment. That is, until the night when a simple holdup turned into a double homicide, robbing the city of two of its most prominent citizens. The once posh restaurants and theaters soon closed, and now in their place stand the abandoned remains in an area now mockingly called Crime Alley. One building in particular stands in contrast, the Thomas Wayne Memorial Clinic. Outside, one junkie tries to convince another to break in and steal the cash and drugs inside, but the other fears someone far worse than the cops. As if in answer, the subject of their fear appears. He kicks in the door of the clinic, and Dr. Leslie Tompkins, ball bat in hand, rushes to meet who she believes to be yet another burglar. Instead, she finds the torn and battered form of the Batman, holding the lifeless body of his young partner, Robin. The distraught Dark Knight pleads, help him. They say there is no hope in Crime Alley, and few know this better than Bruce Wayne. But tonight, the Dark Knight hopes they are wrong. Leslie addresses Batman as Bruce and asks what happened. The masked manhunter explains how Robin was struck by four stray bullets from the Mad Hatter's gun. Leslie tells him Jason's heart is faint, but he does have a small chance. When Batman asks what he can do to help, she suggests he start praying. 
As Dr. Tompkins begins her operation, the Cape Crusader closes his eyes and relives his parents' murders once more. Through those eyes, we see what he saw that night. The pleasant conversation about the movie they had just watched soon turns to confusion as the man in the slouched hat approaches. He brandishes his gun, reaches for Martha Wayne's necklace, and enraged, Thomas Wayne makes his move. He is murdered for it, and his screaming wife is soon silent as well, her hand slipping from her son's. Bruce stares and points at the gunman, proclaiming, they're dead, over and over. He begins to pound the murderer with his fists, who is now rattled by the child and the sound of approaching sirens. He cracks Bruce atop the head and flees, dropping the gun which lands behind a fence in some nearby bushes. Bruce witnesses the arrival of the police and the procedural that follows. The tape, the detectives, the chalk outlines. The morgue attendants take his parents' remains away and Bruce wants to follow. He is stopped by a friendly face. A young Leslie Tompkins comforts him and asks him to come with her. With Bruce finally giving in to his sorrow and anger, she vows to do what she can. The present meets the past as Dr. Leslie Tompkins announces she's done all she can for young Jason Todd. She believes if he makes it through the night, he'll probably live. Batman assures her he is a fighter, which sets Leslie into a lecture on how he shouldn't have been in such danger in the first place. She reminds him of the close call Dick Grayson once suffered as Robin. Batman counters that he saved Jason from a life of crime and that he didn't choose him for the work. The work chose him. Leslie scoffs at him for making his work sound so noble and unselfish and anything other than revenge. She recalls the night she took young Bruce home after his parents' funeral. He recalls that night as well, how he snuck out, returned to the cemetery, and vowed to avenge his parents' deaths. He then returned to Crime Alley, where he found the murder weapon and took it with him. Leslie admits she feels responsible for the course Bruce's life took. Despite becoming his foster mother, she and Alfred were unable to steer him away from the course he had charted that night. Batman tells her what he became was beyond the control of either of them, and reminds her that he supports the clinic and many other social programs under her guidance. When she points out that he isn't the real Bruce Wayne, Batman assures her, It's the only me there is, Leslie. Their argument continues, with both pointing out to one another how empty their lives are beyond their work. After young Bruce Wayne was suspended from school once for beating up a bully, she hoped he would grow out of that phase, but his behavior continued into college. There, Bruce Wayne appeared as a rich waste in order to gather information and maintain the solitude he needed for his studies. While Wayne played the fop in class, he could attend the same class in disguise and ask the hard questions his rich playboy persona could not. And when that didn't work, he wasn't beyond donning a mask and sneaking into staff offices to gather information. When the staff wanted to boot Wayne out of college, substantial donations for libraries and other buildings were offered in the family name. Batman admits he liked those times, back when he really thought he could make a difference. Leslie asks him then why he does it. Batman asks, why does she run this clinic? Why patch up street gangs and drug addicts when they will be back next week? When she answers because she has to, Batman understands. She asks, what about Bruce Wayne? Batman admits he's not sure he exists anymore. When she mentions what he's doing to Jason, he counters he is trying to make sure Jason doesn't grow up like him. That he has outlets for his anger as both Jason and Robin. He hopes the boy can then work through it and move on with his life. But now he worries he may have killed him instead, in an end he often saw for himself. Batman begins to agree that there is no need for him, as Leslie suggested, but she stops his self-loathing short. She longs for the day when he won't be necessary, but until that day, he is needed, and she's glad he is here to do his work. Jason awakens, and pulling back his cow, Bruce apologizes to the boy, swearing he won't force him to be Robin again. A weakened but no less resolute Jason smiles and says, Are you kidding, Bruce? We've got work to do. Dawn and Hope rise over Crime Alley. Okay, what do you think of that one? I've been thinking about this issue a lot um, because we've had so much time to, to sit on this one <laughs> after reading it two months ago in, in preparation and then having so much co- time come between them. 
I think this one, maybe more than any other issue that we've covered, to me sort of represents the epitome of Mike Barr's take on Batman. Uh, And when Mm -hmm. I say that, I, I mean it kind of, it encapsulates all of the good and all of the bad. And when I say bad, I have a very narrow idea of what that bad is, but it's really pronounced in this issue. The good is his his take, his idea, the way he's able to take what feels like some silver and bronze age concepts about Batman and his lore and give them this fresh take that feels current for the time, very sort of 80s, a little bit more mature, a little bit more sophisticated. When I say bad, it's at times where the tone doesn't quite connect. And I think this is a this is an issue where I can read Batman and Robin adventures and Batman taking a child into this war, even as an adult and now a father, I can read those stories and suspend my disbelief of that situation as long as the story itself doesn't shine a light too too harshly on the ridiculousness of that situation. Mm. And this issue does. It shows you, like, okay, what is the consequence of when Batman brings a kid into this war and that kid gets gravely injured? Okay, that's a really dramatic story, and you have a lot of emotion all over this place, and it leads to some interesting flashback stories, and we get a lot of cool info here that I love, but... You also have the series take of Leslie challenging him, saying, what were you thinking bringing a kid out onto the streets and fighting a guy with guns? The minute Leslie questions him, you're forced to take a side. You have to defend him or not. And it's it's not something you can defend. You can't take Batman's side in this. Just logically, if you're going to apply any kind of realistic scrutiny to this, no, Batman, you're absolutely wrong to do this. And and that just makes me kind of pull apart more of these things because then I start then my suspension of disbelief is completely gone and I start looking at other things that okay, Leslie has this clinic in the middle. Is like what is she the only one who works there because based on the art it looks like she's the only staff there. She can't treat a gunshot victim with four bullet wounds by herself. Like, if she's going into the operating room, she would need a staff. She would need nurses. She would need somebody just handling blood transfusions because he would need a lot of blood transfusions after four gunshot wounds. She would need somebody to administer pain medication. She would need other people. Like, uh, but we don't see any of that. So, and, and, and by law, she would have to call the police. Now, I know, obviously, if we're, if we're in the world of Batman, you have people who, who shirk that kind of law because, I mean, Commissioner Gordon, the highest-ranking police officer, breaks his own rule in that way. But if she's questioning that, like, it's just, it brings up a lot of questions that don't have good answers. So that is that is the bad, and that that is a heavy thing hanging over my head as I'm reading this story today that I wouldn't have had a little while ago. There's still a lot of really good, and I'll I'll let you kind of get into what you, what you think of good, and I'll come back to it because I've already been talking a while. So, what did you think about this one? <laughs> oh no, no, I I don't know. I mean, I talked through the first part of the episode, so I was just gonna let you go. People haven't heard you in a while, and, you know. So- <laughs> well, the, the big, the overall good that I will say, which is something that I wish we did get more of, and this is something that a lot of people over the last couple of episodes have been talking about, especially as we've been covering Batman Year One on the Batman-centric episodes. Um, people have called Batman Year One 
Gotham Year One or Gordon Year One. They've talked about how it's sort of an origin story for the ma- the cape and the cowl, but we don't get a whole lot of Bruce and his origin, his personality, and that time between. This issue kind of gives us a, a taste of that, and I, I, this comes probably closest for the post-crisis era, even though this is a weird kind of transitional phase where, yeah, it is post-crisis, but it might not be the era that we think of as post-crisis, not yet, because we'll still get more changes. But this comes close to giving us that, you know, New Earth, Bruce Wayne year one type of thing, because we see him in college. We see him immediately after the murder and how he reacts and what he does that night. Uh, and those things. And those are all good things that I would have liked to see more of. I would have liked to see that fleshed out. And uh, without going too far, I would have rather seen that story played out more than year two that we'll get in future episodes. But uh, <laughs> So that's the good, and, and it's really good. But uh, what, what were you thinking? Well, I, actually, I hadn't really thought of – I was more in reading this kind of wrapped up in trying to piece together exactly where we were in the continuity as such as it is. And this issue does feel more like it is trying to bridge the gap between what Barr and Davis have been doing, which really feels like we were still firmly on Earth One. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whereas, you know, Miller – what Miller and Mazzuchelli were doing was this new interpretation and and – there's obviously some actual visual cues to that in this um, in this issue, but I hadn't really thought about the um, the whole you know realism aspect of it. But now that you say that, I can see it. I mean, it's the same thing that's kind of leveled a little bit at the Nolan films in a way, and we always bring it up the Nolan films. But when you're talking about a realistic portrayal of Batman, you know, I think you kind of got to mention them. That's a you know, it's a, probably the, the the one that most people are familiar with, mm-hmm. uh, based on how many people saw those movies. Uh, but <laughs> you know, uh, you know, as the movies went along, they they kept stripping more and more of the fantastical elements away from the stories. I mean, it became more of a straight crime drama and then dark knight rises is like some kind of urban war movie you know mm-hmm. so and when you do that when you when you when you go too far you can kind of argue then well you know batman's fighting bane on the steps of in in broad daylight on the steps of the courthouse <laughs> you know it, it's what's the point of him being batman why doesn't he just have some kind of body armor on without the ears and you know what i mean it's right, like it's right. when you've stripped it down that far then you you call into question why even go in this direction with these characters you know why why go for the fantastical costumes and things like that so i can see your point when you've got you know when you when you when you really shine the light on the child endangerment angle of robin then now you're on a slippery slope and and you know we get lip service to uh, the incident that we'll soon be covering in Batman. The uh, yes. don't you remember what happened to Dick? And <laughs> we're going to have a lot to say about that. Yeah, uh, I, I, that surprised me when I was reading this because I was like, wait a minute, that issue didn't come out for another two weeks. Mm-hmm. So they're, yeah, they're is... giving us a preview of what the new status quo will be before we even see it play out in Batman. Right, and when we away. See... yeah. And Bruce, you know, mentions the he saved Jason from a life of crime. That mm-hmm. is the first reference to the new Jason's origin, even though Alan Davis draws him in his Burt Ward sweater <laughs> yeah. and button-up shirt instead of his punk vest. And, you know, uh, 
yeah, so that's yeah, kind of inc- yeah. The image he draws of Bruce sitting at the sitting into the chair with the bat on the bust of uh, busted head. That Bruce looks like he's in his like smoking jacket. He's not bleeding to death either. No, it's weird because we get the we get the bat, but you know, bursting through the window through the glass, and he's on the bust. But yeah, he's he's not bleeding out, you know. So it's he doesn't have the bell ready to call Alfred. I think this issue really, I mean. And, and there's a bit at the end of the issue that in the letters column that we'll get to. I want to get to at the end, but I, I think one thing this this issue really it ha- not only does it kind of hang a lantern on okay you can't take this stuff too seriously or you'll really start to you'll really start to side against Batman especially when he's got somebody with some sense you know talking about why are you endangering this kid. But it also hangs a lantern on the fact that although Denny O'Neill was getting good stories and good comics out of these creators, and he, this issue he's trying to make everything match up, it's still not matching up. <laughs> you know, they're, yeah. it, they're, you know, the editorial coordination is still not where it really needs to be. I know, I know, we're looking at this in hindsight as okay, this is the start of the post-crisis era, and it's not. It wasn't quite that way. I mean. And we're also taking into the account what they did in the Superman books, which was very much like that kind of start that we're kind of looking for here. It doesn't exist here. I mean, it just doesn't. But when they try to get everything to sync up, it's still not syncing up. (laughs) Yeah, there's there doesn't feel like one singular vision. The Superman books had John Byrne's artistic singular vision and and scripting and the editing. Was it Michael Carlin? Did he was he? Uh, it was Andrew Helfer, then Michael Carlin. Okay. Yeah. But those, you know, on the Superman books, you had one kind of singular creative vision. But the Batman books, not really. I mean, Denny O'Neill is the one kind of constant as he's editing, but you feel like a lot of these things were already in the works when he came aboard. David Mazzuchelli and Alan Davis, you could not ask for two more different artists in terms of style. But even mm-hmm. when they're trying to approach the same scene, it's not just their their vision, their style is different. Like, they don't even cast it the same way. They don't costume it the same way. They're just all these things that are very different in these interpretations. Right. It's And, and then take different writers. Like, it's one of – again, like I was I, – I think I mentioned this way back in one of the early episodes, and, and I forgot to keep count, but I've got to. Like, we're going to have – I think more than 10 different writers on the first two years of these Batman and detective comics books in this era. <laughs> it's just, it's hard. Like they, and, uh, and yeah, the different visions, it's going to take a while for it to coalesce. And as it stumbles over, like some of the stuff you kind of like uh, a second later, it's like, well, is this story canon? Is this story going to mean anything when we come to the very next issue, next episode, when we cover Batman 408? How much of this story is in continuity or not? Like, I, I, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like maybe it's kind of like what the what's going on with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the TV version. They're mm-hmm. kind of <laughs> they're kind of connected, but now that the movie version doesn't want to play with the TV version, so the right. TV version is just picking up the the, the movie version scraps or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah. So it's kind of feels it kind of feels like what Detective is is kind of playing catch up, and you know we've heard that you know Davis and and Mike Barr and Davis were were working way far ahead. Um, you know, and, and so, so it makes you think that maybe, you know, with this issue, had they caught up to at least the first part of Batman, the first two parts of Batman year one or, or what, I don't know. But of course the gun in this issue 
according to everything I've read, was originally a Mauser mm-hmm. that that the Wayne's murderer who will call Joe Chill because he's still going to be Joe Chill, guys. But um, uh, the, the gun that Joe Chill used um, is was redrawn as a you know a, a typical forty five automatic type. So I, and honestly, in reading through this. I would have a hard time with it being a Mauser. I mean, that just seems too out there. You know, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem random enough. I mean, it seems like, you know, it, it takes away from the randomness of the Wayne murders that this guy has a very specified gun just because that's the one that Walt Simonson drew for, you know, Paul Kirk Manhunter. You know, yeah. that's just yeah. <laughs> so. But, you know, speaking of which, you get, get into some of the, the details here. I think it's interesting to go into the, the origin and, and see what is different in this one and what, what stuck and what didn't in retellings as we go forward, you know, because we had the very stripped down, very simplistic origin sequence in Batman Year One. And then this one is very detailed from the perspective, actually from the perspective of Bruce when he close his eyes and and is this the first time we get every time i close my eyes i watch my parents die gosh i don't know <laughs> i don't know it didn't pop up because when i read that i was like oh yeah that's a line i feel like i've read a thousand times but maybe right yeah i don't remember it it's not in year one so i'm pretty sure so i think that <laughs> this is this is probably the first time we got it so we mike w bars wanted to come up with that angle i guess i think a lot of people think that's miller but I don't think it is. I don't think it's because it's not in because when he flashes back into the his parents murder in the dark night, he's actually watching Zorro. It comes on TV and that's what sends him into flashbacks. And you've got this these shots of this horrific look on Bruce Wayne's face with his eyes wide open. So it's not from the Dark Knight Returns. So, yeah, yeah, this uh, seems to be the first one where it's like really that memory can be sparked by another catalyst. It's like uh, it's the, the constant haunting that never goes away from him. Right. And of course, we meet Leslie Tompkins post-crisis for the first time. Now, this will stick her being a doctor. And and this is this is Barr casting her as the doctor versus just the kindly woman who comforted Bruce. Uh, She debuted in Detective number 457 in in March 1976. And the classic story, There Is No Hope in Crime Alley, written by Denny Mm O'Neill with art by Dick Giordano. And uh she showed up a few times in the interim uh, between that story and this one, uh, most notably probably in, in Mike W. Barr's uh, The Player on the Other Side in Batman Special Number 1. Um, you know, she would meet Bruce at, on the anniversary uh, – meet Batman, sorry, on the anniversary of his, his parents' death and, you know, there in, in Crime Alley. And But, uh, you know, here she is recast as a, as a doctor, a little bit younger a little feistier and uh, very much important in, at least here, in the upbringing of Bruce Wayne because she becomes his foster mother. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, you know, when I read that, I mean, I knew she was involved in helping raise him, but you kind of, you kind of put that, the word foster mother is like, wow, that's, that's pretty strong. And, and Alfred is never mentioned. You just see him in the artwork Mm -hmm. standing with her. But he is never mentioned. And, you know, we get this. The common thought is, you know, post Miller, Alfred is a surrogate father figure. And uh, here it doesn't say it almost seems like he's just the the involved but not as involved family butler in this in this scenario. You know, (laughs) thinking I was trying to remember when I first met Leslie Tompkins. It might have been Batman, the animated series. Mm-hmm. might have been the episode of that. I think I was watching that right around the time that I got the trade paperback for year two. 
maybe I read year two first, but if it did, like the character didn't didn't pop because I think when I saw her in Batman the Animated Series, I think at that time I felt like I she was a new character. I didn't know her or I didn't remember her from anything else. So I don't remember. I think it might have been that. Maybe if I had read year two by then, I didn't remember her from it. I was probably more just looking at the art when I was go- flipping through that one and not reading it as closely. That's that's my memory of her, yeah. Yeah, it, it, and she did appear in, uh, you know, there, there's an adaptation of There's No Hope in Crime Alley. And then then the paging the Crime Doctor episode, mm-hmm. the story was actually written by Mike Barr. Mm-hmm. So so he brought, you know, brought that forward into the end. I mean, of course, he'd already used her, but. Mm-hmm. So he actually, that, on... that episode, I was reminded of it when I was reading this. I felt like, and again, because of the sort of underground claim, because <laughs> there's. I, I like this idea that he could use this, and even like in the Marvel universe, like the Night Nurse has her own clinic where like the the street level guys like Daredevil and Spider Man and Luke Cage can go when they need help. But there's also the fact that again, Batman, you've got a kid with four gunshot wounds. Like, is this mm-hmm. the best? Is this the best chance he has for survival? For keeping right. your secret? Yes, this is the best. This is the best alternative. But if you really want Jason to survive, bring him to Gotham General or whatever the major <laughs> hospital is. Full, pay, use Bruce Wayne's credit card to pay in a world-class surgeon from wherever to, to treat this kid. Because one doctor who might have a staff and might not is not going to save his life. So, again, that's something that I was like, ah, I can't suspend disbelief, damn it. I can't do it. <laughs> well, you know, he could have stripped his costume off of him like he does poor Jason's corpse and Batman death in the family, you know. <laughs> uh, then you have other questions like why are you bringing why are you bringing in this half naked kid into the hospital? Yeah, thirteen. He he dresses he dresses him he he. He he he, or he gets he gets some clothes. He gets a gun. He shoots he shoots the clothes in the exact same spot Jason got shot. Dresses him in the clothes. You know, it's like, all to protect the secret identity. Uh. I want to kind of go through a few of the elements of the flashbacks that we see peppered throughout this. Um, I do too. Good. Um, first. I don't like the word balloons like in the dialogue when he sees his parents talking and them talking to Joe Chill, for lack of a better name. Like the way the the word balloons are kind of like bubbled with this extra effect. I don't know what effect it's supposed to have, if it's supposed to sound distorted or echoey, but I I don't like it. It, it made it made them seem sort of inhuman or ghostly or something. What did you think mm. about the word balloons? Yeah, I think that was it. I think that was just to show that we're we're in flashback and it is kind of like echoing in his head. I I didn't mind that so much. I thought the I thought the sequence, I thought the coloring was nice, but I'm a sucker for whatever reason we've talked about for Adrian Roy's <laughs> yellow orange color palette when she uses in either fire or flashbacks. It just I don't know, it just works for me. So <laughs> What did you think about little Bruce actually fighting back and striking him and getting pistol whipped? Uh, you know, I honestly think that that you know we've just stripped down the origin in year one. We've 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 jettisoned all the Lou Moxon, Mrs. Chilton, mm-hmm. Thomas Wayne as Batman stuff. You know, and now we're adding back more stuff. <laughs> That's just what it feels like. It's like I, I think Bruce being completely debilitated to where he he just doesn't even know how to act. Where he's just le- he's kneeling in the street next to him. Is much more powerful than he instantly 
is angered enough to, you know, to point at him. But, the, you know, that's in like the Untold Legend of the Batman where he's like, you killed them, you know, and the, he's like, stop looking at me, kid, you know. Mm. So that's that's a carryover from the uh, – it, it, it's even in the 1948 origin of Batman because you see that one panel of Bruce's eyes looking at, at Joe Chill as he runs off. So, I mean, it's 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 an old part of the origin that's that's still there. But as far as like actually assaulting him and beating on him – it kind of reminded me of of the scene in the animated series episode Robin's Reckoning when young Dick Grayson tracks down Tony Zuko and starts beating on him, mm-hmm. and then Batman has to come in. That's what it reminded me of, even yeah. though I've read this years before that. But that's what I I could just hear the little kid that played Dick in that episode going, "Why, why?" and beating on him. You know, it just it just it just made me think of that. And then him actually getting hit in the head. I mean, if he got hit in the top of the head with a with a heavy gun like that, I mean, he would have a he would have a concussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's like maybe that explains what happened to Batman, Bruce Wayne's psyche. <laughs> you know, just the trauma of what he just witnessed on top of an actual head injury, you know. But and and then of course the gun, you know, the gun gets thrown away and. That is a huge plot point for Batman Year Two, just in case you kids didn't know. Right. Uh, so <laughs> that's deliberately planted there. Yeah, I, I. Oh yeah, definitely. And I, I did think it was kind of interesting the scenes of of what Bruce saw after you know Joe Chill runs off. I mean, the cops that are you know, the, the one cop's like, "Oh man, you shouldn't have called the, the should called a meat wagon," and the other one like elbows, I'm like, "Shh, be quiet. Look over there." You know, it's pointing to Bruce and. It's kind of haunting, really, to think about a poor kid having to watch all that. And mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like anybody's with him until they take the bodies away and then Leslie comes up to him. You know, so it's like, OK, who doesn't how I know the Gotham cops obviously weren't, according to year one, weren't uh, very good at their jobs, obviously, and didn't care. But could not somebody comfort this poor kid? <laughs> well, you know, it's like, geez, you know, I, I think maybe if they'd shown Leslie earlier there, it might have. It might have played a little better, but I know they wanted her to be the the one to save him in the, his his most dire moment, you know. But yeah, it I, I liked it. It was well executed. I mean, again, it, Thomas and Martha Wayne look nothing like they did in Batman Year One. Sure. Uh, Thomas Wayne's clean shaven with he's Bruce Wayne, you know, basically looks just like him, just like the the pre crisis version. Uh, but it's it's well done. But yeah, the 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 add ons, yeah. Nah, I think I think this, this keep it simple, you know. <laughs> yeah, I I don't like Bruce fighting back. I don't like him hitting the hitting the killer. I think once they're shot, Bruce just kind of like sits there, dumbfounded, like struck dumb, is what saves him. Um, because at this point, like the, he's he's willing to shoot Martha just because she like reaches for him and she's fighting back. I think if he's that spooked by the sirens and a kid starts clawing at him and punching him, and I think he he would have shot the kid too. I mean, it's a it's a witness. I think the fact that Bruce doesn't do anything might be the only thing that saves him. So I didn't really like this this change. I think it's I think maybe the only reason we get it is to sort of explain why he throws away the gun, but that doesn't, he doesn't need a re, an excuse to throw away the gun. I did. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of logical sense, but I do like the idea that all of this is going around. Like the cops are picking up the bodies, they're chalking, like outlining them, they're doing their canvassing and, and questioning and stuff. And Bruce is just sitting there witnessing this with nobody to comfort him for mm-hmm. the longest time because that does shape who he will become and his approach and his attitude. 
Um, so when Leslie does appear out of nowhere to comfort him, I'll, I'll, some time has passed. I, I'm okay with that one. Yeah, uh, there's some nice little touches like Martha's still holding Bruce's hand when she mm-hmm. rushes toward after Thomas is shot. And then when she's shot, Davis draws her hand, letting go of his. And then when their bodies are on the ground, Martha's hand is on Thomas's back. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, you know, there's some nice little thoughtful details put in there that just, and, and you know, it, it makes it all that much sadder because you really do get the, Barr does a good job of making you like the Waynes here, which we're not going to get that all the time, especially from Thomas Wayne in the post-crisis era. He's not... He's not exactly the cuddly dad that he seems to be here, you know, um, and I mean, they, they let him go. They let him watch the movie twice, which I mean, if you wanted to go there, you could you could set up some guilt for Bruce that he asked him to stay later to see the movie twice, you mm-hmm. know, uh, which I think is interesting. And we don't know what movie it is this in this one. It's not specifically said to be Zorro or anything else, but. Uh, I thought actually going back to the very first page when it showed the transition of Park Row and then the the the, the brief strip with the the murder, mm-hmm. it's like the three panel progression was really nice. And then the next page shows it again with the clinic in place. But according to that, the clinic is right across is right next to the theater they came from and right across the street from where they were murdered. So wow, you know, <laughs> I mean. It's, I, I, yeah, I kind of like that. We see, we do see the the clinic replaced Shea Gotham, which is ah, oh, that's such a cheesy, dumb name for a restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, we get it, but yeah, I, I do. I actually kind of like that the clinic replaced that, and that's where it is, and that it's so close to where the parents are. I also like this inter- exchange between the two crooks and the one guy. Like, I don't want to do anything here. The man's got his eyes on this place. He, he's he's like the cops. Like not the cops. The other one. Like the idea that there are places that the criminal underworld kind of suspect, you know what, this is part of his routine. Like Batman pays particular interest to this place. Nobody knows why. They're not going to figure out, but they're like, he's been seen here a lot. Let's stay the hell away. And, yeah, and the yeah. guy makes the bad ears with mm-hmm. his fingers. I like that. <laughs> That's a nice uh, little visual. Also, the, the splash page on page four, like the title page, um, with Batman standing in the like coming in the doorway out of the rain. I really like that image. Um, yeah, it's gosh, it, that doesn't. I don't know. Like maybe it's like the effect of the rain, or really the cape that doesn't seem like a normal uh, Alan Davis Batman image. That that reminds no, me of it, lots of not- others, like from Norm Brayfogle, who we'll see later on, maybe because of the cape, but a little bit Aparo or Adams too. I can see that. Yeah, I think part of it's too is that the angle. It does look it does look kind of Adamsy, and I, mm-hmm. and the legs kind of look Brayfogle-y, mm-hmm. The musculature in the legs. Yeah. Did you catch? There's an error there because. It says a 47th anniversary inquiry into the Dark Knight's roots by, and then the credits. Well, this is 1987. So 1989 is Batman's 50th anniversary. This is a 48th anniversary inquiry into the Batman's roots. <laughs> yeah. Good. I never even thought about that. I didn't either until I was reading it, and I'm like, whoops. <laughs> They're off by a year. <laughs> Yeah, because he wasn't created I mean, we in 1940. Much he was, yeah, okay. Right, yeah, he was created in 1939. So, yeah, that's maybe they're talking about, well, no, the, even the origin of Batman, I think. Yeah, it was in Detective 33, so it was in 1939, too. So it's not it's not the anniversary of the origin. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's kind of strange. Yeah, that, that, that was just an error, <laughs> you know, just straight up. Uh, so what do we think about, I mean, this is leading into Batman Year 2, of course. 
What do we think about the sequence where Bruce, you know, leaves the house and and goes to the cemetery and all, and and then what follows there? Um, I like the silence of it that that Mike Bard just got out of the way and let Davis portray this. Um, Crown Hill Cemetery is the name of the. I don't know if that's ever been named that or if that's based on anything. I like him kneeling down in front of their grave and like screaming in the shadow. We get this angel backlit by the moon and the halo above her sort of creates the bat symbol effect. It's a little mm-hmm. bit on the nose, but it's cute. It, I I have no problem with that. I see it working. Him returning to the scene. This is after their funeral. I don't think the chalk outlines and the bloodstains would still be there. Yeah. Um. But okay, it's fine. Him getting the gun, running away. I'm fine with that. I, I I get that. I this is part of the origin where I I kind of like that Bruce has this drive almost right from the beginning. Like he doesn't know how to channel this rage, but he knows he has to do something. Um. So the fact that he he returns to the scene of the crime, he collects the weapon, he hides it. He's he's got a he's got an idea of a plan. He doesn't have the whole plan. He's got twelve percent of a plan. Um. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, it's, I mean, the the gun thing, it is part of the next storyline. So, I mean, it's got to kind of be there. And the only thing is, is just how inept were the cops in Gotham City that they didn't search. Right. <laughs> they didn't search the bushes immediately around to see if there was any kind of, you know, mm-hmm. evidence or any, you know, I mean, it's it seems a little hard to swallow that they wouldn't have found a gun that had just dropped behind a fence, you know, <laughs> it, the exact same area they were in. I mean, you know, it, but... Here's my biggest question. It's on page 15. Okay. When Leslie's telling the story of like her sort of adopting him in court, the third panel with her and Alfred looking so crestfallen and depressed and worried about Bruce reading The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Is that really a telltale that he's going to become a vigilante? Like, I, like I, I read The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes when I was his age. I don't remember my parents worrying that much about it. Like, oh no, this is a sign that he's going to become the world's greatest detective, but also a caped crusader. Like, why, why does that bother them? What, what it is, is he keeps saying 2218 Baker Street. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. That's why they're looking at him that way. I meant you, my dear Watson. <laughs> Callback humor. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> hey, I'm doing it to myself so nobody else can, right? <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, that that is kind of odd. I mean, if he was like – I think that would have been a better, better illustrated if you had a stack of books on criminology mm-hmm. or something, you know, like actual hard criminal science books versus fantasy, you know, fiction. I mean, not fantasy, but fiction, you know, fictional uh, detective stories. I mean, yeah, what – Lots of kids. I read Sherlock Holmes when I was at his age too. I mean, you know, I, you know. I mean, if he was reading like that, or you know, Hustler. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's just, just yeah. <laughs> copies of Playboy, something. Then you get the yeah. look, but yeah. he's reading too much Fangoria. You know, they're like, oh, that's, that's not good for him to see this. <laughs> heavy metal. <laughs> he's reading heavy metal. Yeah, <laughs> it's got boobs in it. He can't read that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 
that is a uh, interesting. I mean, the the debate between Batman and Leslie through this is that, like you said, it's actually it's almost too good, like you said, because you kind of you kind of tend to side with with Leslie, you know, here and and. And this is definitely, I mean, they come out flat out and have Batman say that this is, you know, Batman's the only real him that's here. Mm-hmm. And he later says, I'm not even sure Bruce Wayne exists anymore. Well, you know, that, that you know, I had forgotten that he just kind of kind of come out and said that because that is going to be something that, that we see more. We see less and less of the Bruce Wayne, whether it's an act or it's the real guy running Wayne Enterprises. We'll see less and less of that in this era than we did in the previous era. Mm-hmm. So it's it. There's like a demarcation right here, basically, where this begins here. You know, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of why it kind of jumped out at him. It's like wow, you know. I like the abbreviated history of Bruce going to college that we get in these flashbacks. It reminded me of the pre-crisis or the Earth 2 Batman origin that we covered on Secret Origins Episode 6 way, way, way back when. Mm -hmm. But I like this idea that Bruce has already kind of got his mind on this and he's playing the part of the aloof, rich, trust fund boy who doesn't care about his classes. And at times, even like when he has a good question – he has to check himself. Like he'll raise his hand involuntarily, and when people notice it's him, oh, yeah, he's just got a yawn or something. Just play it off like he doesn't care. And at those times when he does need to engage with the professors or his teachers and and have debates with them, he needs to go undercover just for that. So he'll dress up in costumes and make up and disguise himself as a visiting student just to actually ask his teachers questions so that they don't realize how smart he is and how clinically he's thinking about these topics. I think that was really, really fun. Yeah, it definitely was. It, it The only thing is that it doesn't jibe with what, you know, Miller had him abroad for mm-hmm. years, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, and, and we don't really know what he did, according to Miller. But, you know, pretty soon we'll start filling those gaps with a lot of, you know, training into bed and, you know, basically ninja training, you know, mm-hmm. basically yeah. is what we're going to get into. And, and, and we don't get any of that in here. And, and it's interesting the, in the last episode, well, before your walking with Roy episode, the last episode <laughs> of secret origin, we talked about the man who falls and there's still elements of Bruce in college in that origin. So some of these elements, you know, Bruce making himself so unlikable that nobody will have anything to do with him and, and, and things like that actually still carry over into that origin, which is what, like, what is that? Like, uh, about three years from this, it was like 19, was it 1980, late 18, late 89, early 90 or something like that. So, uh, cause that was based on legends of the dark Knight, right? Yes. Yeah. So that so, came out, was that 88 or eight? Well, it was the, it was for the 50th anniversary. That came out at the same time. Right. So yeah. 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 So late eighty nine, early ninety it come out. Yeah. And uh yeah, it's still you're still carrying over here. Yeah, but I thought of the Roy Thomas origin. So it's kind of it's got a little elements of both of those secret origin things. I did like how he kind of uh, the little bit that, you know, he basically bought the school off when they were wanting to kick him out. He'd just have a Thomas Wayne Memorial Library built or or, or something. <laughs> <laughs> that was nice. I like that. <laughs> We do get a pre kind of pre Batman costume when he decides to sneak into you know the staff offices to, yeah. to get the information. He's he's got like a black you know half mask, no ears of course, no bat iconography, uh, but he's got a pouch belt on. He's dressed all in black. He, he he's very like, Ma- Mazzuchelli looking. Yes, yeah, but I was gonna say he's Mazzuchelli's Daredevil. <laughs> it's like 
Yeah. Or not well it was I guess it was Ramita Jr. who did the Daredevil uh Man Without Fear, but it's like yeah, it's it's that idea. It's like a cross between those two different styles, but it looks very much like that proto vigilante before the costume that uh that became popular with Miller's Daredevil. Yeah, it's. I mean, that's 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 true. It looks like uh, looks like what the Netflix Daredevil looked mm-hmm. like at first. Yeah, yeah. Or Rex Smith in the Trial of the Hulk movie. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, yeah. I thought that was kind of. He also reminded me a bit of what he uh, wore in uh, Mask of the Phantasm, just a little bit. I yeah. mean, although it was more just a coat and a ski hat pulled over, ski mask pulled over his face. But yeah, and we do get a very very Mazzuccelli. Batman Year One costume uh, on page 20 where it shows where he's trying to tell Leslie that, you know, he's trying to make sure Jason's got an outlet because it shows, you know, where it shows him in his study, you know, going over his books. It shows Jason out playing ball. And then it shows him donning the original Batman suit from Batman Year One, which, as I said, looks very Mazzuccelli, even the the way Davis draws the the shadows and the highlights on the costume. And then we see Robin, Jason is Robin in action, kicking guys in the face and things. So I, I thought that was interesting. I, obviously, they have shared some of Batman Year One with Dave Barr and Davis at this point. <laughs> Either that or somebody went back and redrew this stuff. I don't know. <laughs> like the gun, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> One thing I will say that this one, and I hate to start this sour grapes because next episode we're going to get a lot of that, but this begins the marginalization of Dick Grayson right here. <laughs> I mean, because you know he is mentioned only in one in one panel, and it's in reference to the storyline that does him no favors that we'll get to next. So <laughs> his years as Robin are are pretty much swept under the rug here. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of which, I might as well get to the From the Den column in the back of uh, this issue in the letters page because I have some serious issues with this. Uh, Okay, I'll I'll just read it. It's very short. Uh, This is, of course, from Denny O'Neill. He says, if some of you aren't sure about exactly where the various Batman stories we're publishing these days fit into a chronology, I don't blame you. Things have gotten a bit confusing lately. Let's try to unconfuse them at least a bit. Yeah, a bit. Uh, (laughs) He continues, Batman Year One in Batman numbers 404 to 407. The series takes place five to six years ago. Okay. Batman Year Two in Detective numbers 575 to 578, four to five years ago. Of course, that's the storyline that's coming up next in this book. Mm -hmm. Did Robin die tonight in Batman number 408, which will be next episode? These events happened about three years ago. And then Denny continues, the story in Batman number 409 will conclude that one begun in the previous issue. I don't know the title at this writing. (laughs) Everything after that will be happening in the present. In detective numbers 569 through 574 and everything from 579 on are present tense unless otherwise noted. Dark night, sometimes in an indefinite future. He continues, any questions? Then take out a sheet of paper. We're going to have a quiz. No, seriously. If any confusion remains, write to let us know, and we'll have another sh- shot at an explanation. Well, Denny, when the crap was Dick Grayson Robin? That's, what, <laughs> that's my question. For like a day? I mean, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, gosh. Because well, okay, so he's saying, well, if did Robin die tonight? Was what did he say? That was three years ago. Uh, yes. Did Robin die tonight? These events happened about three years ago. So, so Dick Grayson was Robin for a year. (laughs) 
Apparently. <laughs> because we don't just just so you kids know, uh, listeners know, we don't get a Robin in Batman year two. Now, historically, <laughs> in Batman's second year of actual publication, Robin entered the picture. Here, he does not. Uh, so, I mean, you could say, okay, maybe reading year two, it doesn't take the entire year. But later on, Robin will be introduced in several years from now in Batman year three. Of course, the chronology will have changed by then. But but yeah, basically, did Robin die tonight ends Dick Grayson's career as Robin in this new continuity. So that means Dick Grayson was Robin for a year. <laughs> <laughs> As of this writing. Oh, so based on when he's saying these contemporaneous detective comic stories are taking place, he's basically saying that Jason Todd had a longer tenure as Robin than Dick Grayson did. Square yes. that circle. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what he's saying right at this moment. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. And now in a few issues time, like, well, let's see, in about eight issues from the next issue of Batman, we will have a story that gives us a more plausible timeline for Dick Grayson's career as Robin. And and I actually remember that in my head thinking, oh, well, that kind of works. But this is, this makes Dan DiDio's five-year timeline sound airtight. I mean, that's <laughs> five-year timeline. Yeah. I mean, this it's just, <laughs> I have lots of questions, Denny. I don't know why I didn't write a letter into this comic book back in 1987. <laughs> uh <laughs> I like this issue. I, I really do. I mean, I, I am kind of surprised that it actually doesn't – it wasn't reprinted as just – I mean, this could have been put into that Secret Origins trade paperback mm-hmm. as the origin of Batman because you really don't – I mean, the fact that Robin was shot – I mean, I mean, you've kind of opened my eyes to, okay, well, maybe this, this isn't a, you know, this opens up a whole nother can of worms when you have Robin get shot. Uh, but I mean, the fact that Robin was just shot by one of Batman's enemies, it could have been any mm-hmm. villain. It, it could have been at any, you know, Batman could have just showed up at the door cold. I mean, we might not even have had a part one to this, you know? Right. So this could have been used in any origin retelling and it's, you know, it's actually, you know, of course, Jason was dead by the point by the time that come out. So I guess that's why they wouldn't use it. It had a short, it had a short shelf life because of all the Jason connections. I guess is what happened. But other than that, it could have worked as just a go to, you know, twenty two page Batman origin to put into into a a big Secret Origin special or what have you. You know, these. I was going to try and make a, a thirty years too late suggestion, but I, I don't think this would have helped it anything more. But I was like, these this Bard Davis run, these almost maybe these should have been Dick Grayson Robin stories instead of Jason stories. Mm. I don't know if that fixes anything or if that makes any the timeline or any of the characterization any better or worse. But yeah, so I mean, yeah, I, th- I think it, I think it probably would have because they kind of in uh, you know in years to come they'll they'll basically point to the fact that when Dick came along, it really did lighten mm-hmm. Bruce's mood. And they, they basically incorporate all of the, the years of daring do type Batman and Robin adventures is, you know, they really had a lot of, I mean, they, they fought a lot of nasty criminals and stuff, but that was the most fun that Bruce ever had as Batman, right, you know, right. and you Dick really, you know, they, they really were the, the, still the Batman and Robin of basically the TV show at that point, more mm-hmm. or less. And then, you know, then when he left things were, for whatever reason, things got darker again. So, and so, the, yeah. the post-crisis vision of Jason Todd that the Batman comics 
eventually arrive at. Now, they might not actually arrive there until after he's dead, but the way they want us to remember Jason is a damaged street kid who had a lot of anger in his heart that he wasn't able to process, and that's what ultimately led to his doom. Now, we're not going to see a lot of that, that until like later on. Like When we first get to him, you know, he's, he's a rough-and-tumble kid, but pretty quickly on, like once we get to the, the Two-Face two-parter, he, it's, you know, it's Robin by any other name. He's you know, cracking jokes and the same type of thing. But again, like if, they could, if they could remold these things you know, after the fact, there are definitely aspects of these that you, you might reassign to different eras or different characters that, that would make the vision that they eventually come to a little bit sturdier right off the bat. So, I mean, like, mm-hmm. like you said, I, I do like this issue. I like this story. It's very interesting. It's very thought provoking. Uh, and, and as I said from the beginning, like, I, I think this is the kind of the epitome of um, Mike Barr's Batman run because it tackles a lot of silver and bronze age fun ideas and puts a, a more adult spin on them. But in this case, it kind of goes too far, and the spin is so adult, and the questions that it poses don't have answers that are going to leave you satisfied if you really hold them to scrutiny. Yeah. Because I just I, – I can't – like once you introduce the element of a real serious threat to Jason's life, you can't – forgive Batman for doing that. He just like once Leslie says, what were you, what did you think would happen? The the house of cards folds. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in, 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 and I'm not trying to beat that story up before we review it, but especially because of all the questions that Batman number 408, did Robin die tonight? Raise about Mm -hmm. what was Batman thinking, benching an 18 to 19 year old trained (laughs) acrobat, who he'd been training for the past, okay, year apparently, but no, I mean, really, several years. Yeah, five, six, real, seven years, maybe. Five, six, seven years. Then, yeah, that even makes this even worse, right. you know, really. And, you know, maybe maybe it's just one of those, you know, maybe Jason getting shot is like Superboy Prime punching the wall. This is like, <laughs> this is the... This is when the crisis, like that gunshot, when the crisis kicked in. That's when the the Earth One Jason Todd finally died, and in his place rose the nebulous Jason Todd of post crisis, who will eventually become the, you know, <laughs> rattled, un, unhinged, you know, street punk kid that can't control his anger. I don't know. <laughs> and the anti monitor couldn't stop him, so they had Rob Kelly call in. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> And with that, I think we should take a break, and then when we come back, we can cover listener feedback. In 1984, I was 10 years old, and a strange light lit up the park behind my house. In the middle of the night, still in my pajamas, I ran to investigate. A strange machine sat brooding in the dark. I stepped inside and I was taken to a far-off galaxy where I saw men, monsters, and gods fight and die. Join us again on the Marvel Superheroes Secret Wars and Beyond series, part of the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, where we will discuss each issue of the Secret Wars miniseries and their long-term impact on the characters who joined us on Battleworld and on those we left behind on the home front. Join us again on Battleworld. Return with us to our Secret Wars.
All right, Nightcast, episode 14, received Twitter favorites and retweets. And actually, before I even read these names for Twitter and Facebook, let me just tell you, uh, it's been about two months since the last episode came out. And backtracking on the social media platforms when those episodes came out and who all liked, shared them, and favorited and retweeted them was a little bit of a chore for me this week. So if I missed your name, I apologize. Let us know. I'll try to correct that in the future. But uh, yeah, I'm sure I forgot a lot of people in this list. But anyway, <laughs> Nightcast 14, Twitter favorites and retweets came, retweets? Retweets came from <laughs> And E at PopVoxCulture, Bat at Shapirak, Brad Dade. Brad Dade actually tweeted me and said, you know, it seems like a while since the last episode of Nightcast. That's because it was a while since the last episode of Nightcast. (laughs) Uh, Charlie Niemeyer, Comic Reflections, David Ace Gutierrez, Dylan A. Lang, Fan Holes Podcast, Film and Water Podcast, Greg Arujo, Hit Girl M, Hokoff, that's H-O-C-O-F, Jim Bow, Joe Crawford, Laurel at Mountainflower One, Mario at Luther Lang, Pod Dylan, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Superman Movie Minute, Ted Kilvington, Tony Wolf, and Treasury Comics. Yeah, I think Hokoff is the history of comics on film. That's Derek. Ah, yeah, okay. I didn't hear yeah. him cop it. Yep, cool. Good That's catch. Derek of the sweet, sweet Transformers jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Over on Facebook, new likes and shares came from Aaron Henley, Batman and Robin Eternal Podcast, Billy LaCase, Brad Dade, Brian Cray, Brian Rosen, Chip Deese, Daniel Doherty, Daniel Rybolt, David Foster, DeBeche, Derek William Crabb, Galleon Studios, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Josh Yoder, Mark Adams, Martin Gray, Mike Peacock, Patrick Delmore, Pat Sampson, Paul Keane, Paul Scavito, Pedro Perez, Rich Matsumoto, Robert McDonald, Robert Myers, Scott Cage, Scott Doonan, Sean Strawbridge, Simon Richardson, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, Terrence Castingway, Terrence O'Neill, and Zoom Yukonori. Uh, we received an email in the interim from Aaron Headmoss of the Headcast Network. He said, Hey, Ryan and Chris, just writing in to say that this is a great companion show to Michael Bailey's From Crisis to Crisis. I'm loving it. Uh, And then Aaron had a couple of thoughts. Number one, I didn't start buying comics until 1987. So when I start looking at back issues, I didn't realize that 401 through 403 was part of the current continuity. Listening to you guys, I don't think DC did either. I always assumed that 404 year one was the start of the new continuity, like Man of Steel did for Superman. That plus 408 was labeled the new adventures of Batman. Yeah, that does seem like a natural sort of kickoff point. Like the one thing that sort of throws the whole wrench in is the Legends tie-in with 401. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Aaron, of course, being the G.I. Joe fan that he is, he had to say, regarding your comments on G.I. Joe, you knew I'd write in about this, G.I. Joe issue 58 was the issue that got me into comics and started my addiction. Just seeing the commander on the cover with somebody, didn't know who it was at the time, in the background, had to have it. As far as finding out Billy was still alive, that's the commander's son, the commander and Destro found this out in issue 55. After they escaped the collapse of the pit, they stole a car. The commander made some false papers, as he used to be a used car salesman, and they were pulled over. The state trooper made a comment that Cobra Commander looked a lot like a picture they found on the body of a boy that they found a little over a year ago, some kid named Billy. Cobra Commander and Destro then drove to the hospital to check on his son. And it was in issue 43, with a skeleton firing a gun on the cover where Billy had his quote-unquote accident. Anyways, keep up the great work, guys. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you for covering those. You're going to have to cover some of those issues on your, uh, your G.I. Joe Real American Headcast someday. Yeah, and, and I, yeah, I always forget that Cobra Commander was a used car salesman. That's just... <laughs> 
I think I like that a little bit better than the guy with all the eyeballs in the movie, you know. Snake creature. <laughs> in the snake creature, yeah. Oh, God. Cobra Law. Okay. It was basically uh, what happens if H.P. Lovecraft had created Cobra. But yeah. Interesting idea. Moving on to the website, comments, which can be found at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, some comments may be abridged or shortened for the sake of expediency, but we'll try to reference everyone who leaves a comment, especially our pal Rob Kelly, since he's kind of the boss around here, him and Shag. Uh, <laughs> Rob Kelly from Superman Movie Minute. That sounds pretty cool. Podcast and other shows on this network said, for years, it nagged me that this Titanic story wraps up without Bruce and his Batman garb. But over time, I've come to realize it really is a Bruce Gordon story. Not Eclipso, Bruce Gordon. <laughs> I was but. going to say, Bruce Gordon, Eclipso? Bruce slash Gordon story. No, not Eclipso, yeah. It's got a. It's got that little plastic diamond on the cover. You know, no, I'm sorry. Uh, that, <laughs> sorry, let me start again. But over time, I've come to realize it really is a Bruce slash Gordon story. Batman is sort of incidental to it. So it makes sense to end with just the two of them, basically stripped of all their defenses, confronting each other. I love Barbara's salty response to Bruce introducing his floozy du jour by mentioning she doesn't speak English. That must be convenient. <laughs> yeah, that was great. I love floozy du Speaking jour. Speaking of. That's a great, great term. Yeah, the floozy du jour. <laughs> That's the floozy of the day. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of, are these women that we see on Bruce's arm at Gotham Society Functions or lounging around Wayne Manor in the morning hired escorts, or is Bruce taking the role to the, that extreme and actually sleeping with them? After all, if enough of these women got together, you think it would come up that millionaire playboy Bruce Wayne has never actually slept with any of them and that gossip would get around. Uh, yeah, this led to a bit of a discussion with a couple of us piping in. Um, yeah, and I, I mentioned this in one of my comments. I, I've I've always thought that kind of like the worst kept secret in Gotham is that Bruce like frequents all of these different like escort services and everything, and kind of pays them off to basically be his beard. But the joke is that they all assume he's gay. Um, or that he's got some kind of like freaky sexual proclivities that like nobody talks about and, and he's just using them. So in their own circles, they kind of giggle about it. None of them realize what they're actually covering up is the fact that he's Batman. They just think he's got like a, like a weird, a, a sexual fetish or that he's just gay and trying to keep that under wraps or something like that. Are you gay? Gay? I wish. If I were gay, there'd be no problem. No, what I have is a romantic abnormality. One so unbelievable that it must be hidden from the public at all costs. You see, Doc, you're asking me to live a lie. I don't know if I can do that. It's remarkably easy. Just smile for the cameras and enjoy Mr. Troy's wild ride. You'll go to the right parties, meet the right people. Sure, you'll be a sham wife, but you'll be the envy of every other sham wife in town. So I, I've always kind of thought that was kind of like the worst kept secret in Gotham. It would actually make sense. It, it's interesting. I just watched – I just got the Blu-ray of Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and I watched it the other night. I hadn't seen it in a while, and there's that one scene where all these women are hanging on Bruce at a party that he's throwing at Wayne Manor, and they're making over him. And and it's like three different women are all just you know rustling his hair and hanging on his shoulder, and then one woman – you know, basically comes up and says, you know, you guys didn't get the memo. Bruce Wayne will make you think you're the most important thing in the world. He'll wind you and dine you and then you'll never hear from him again. And she like pours a drink on his head and walks off, you know. So I think there's at the very least, that's what would happen. You know, it's so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, Rob continues, for years I had this story in a hardcover collected edition, which includes that Amazing Heroes cover you mentioned. This is a nitpick beyond nitpicks, but it drove me crazy that the editors placed it immediately after the final should-be-here-any-minute panel. That's such a perfect way to end it, and then you see this shot of bats in costume. It feels like it's part of the story. I wish DC had given us just a blank page to really put the period on the sentence. Then run the pin up on the next page just to give it that breathing room. I know I'm thinking way too much about this. <laughs> well, it does change. It changed the intention of the that final uh, page of the story. It really does. I mean, because it it looks like it's part of the story. So I totally get that. I always thought it was part of the story because I'd always read the story in paperback in the in the trade. When you told me that wasn't the actual last page of the story, that blew my mind. I always assumed that it was. Yeah, it it kind of it didn't occur to me till I was really going back and forth with them that oh yeah this is it would make people think that so and it's yeah. this is not necessarily the the movie that I want to reference but it made me think of the end of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies like Batman Forever and Batman and Robin which end with that shot of Batman and Robin and then the other one Batgirl too with the like their silhouettes running forward as the bat symbol is behind them. That was mm-hmm. the image that I always associate, and that's how those movies end. That was what I thought of when I yeah. got to, to year one. I was just like, oh yeah, he's he kind of like, you could almost hear his Gordon's voice over that last line should be here any minute as Batman is kind of like leaping out or swinging over the thing, and then you know hard cut to black, and then ending credits. You can hear the yeah. As much as Joel Schumacher's Batman movies went in the wrong direction, I still like the end of Batman and Forever when they're running. Oh the no, that's a great board. ending. Yeah. yeah, that's a great shot. Yeah, it gets me all goosebumpy and stuff. I can't help it. <laughs> Uh, Rob continues. Also, Chris's 2218 rudder. Elementary, my dear Watson. Eats its own cue at this point, a la Shazam and the whip. <laughs> okay, now I've got to find a, spe- a sound effect for that. And you used it <laughs> earlier in this episode. Damn it. <laughs> it should be, he should get like Basil Rathbone going, Elementary, dear Watson, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I love it, Uh, Our buddy Siskoi, the host of the Fire and Water team-up and other shows here on the Fire and Water Network, said, told you it was Gordon's story. He said that way back in the beginning. Uh, Siskoi also said, how quickly or slowly will the history set out in year one and its implications impact Batman's contemporary stories, I wonder? Uh, For some of them, very quickly. For some... Not so much. Um, mm-hmm. uh, again, it's a weird thing. And and you could say, is Batman Year One the definitive history of post-crisis? Or is it its own beast, its own little separate solitary thing? And, and the origin is more kind of a, a hodgepodge. Because, again, Batman Year One does not feel like a world that exists in with Superman and Wonder Woman and the Justice League and all their characters. But... Batman Yet does. they reference Superman in the they, story. They do, they do. So it's got to, but it's, yeah. I, I think by the time we get into the early 90s, it's pretty much, it is pretty much the beginning. I mean, because they they really don't contradict it much in the, the zero issues, as I recall, when yeah. they did zero hour. I mean, they're even when they could have threw it out, they don't because it, <laughs> you know, it became a, you know, holy scripture by that point. <laughs> well, they make so much money off of the reprints that, yeah, they're like, no, that is the definitive thing. Okay, David Ace Gutierrez, executive producer of Pod Dylan and maybe the Film and Water podcast, said, Man, this is one crooked world when all I do is agree with Chris Franklin. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to take that. Uh, like you both, 
<laughs> he's, he, David continues, like you both, I also wondered why the series ended the way it did. It's the inverse of every superhero origin story. He stops the bad guys in his civilian identity. If it was a film today, he'd be unmasked, sure, but he would have started the battle suited up. But it works, doesn't it? Because Batman shows that he's just a man. He's not mythic. He's not, quote-unquote, super, just a practically-minded athlete. And it's the perfect show of trust for Gordon. A dude in a bat suit didn't save his kid. A member of Gotham City's best family did. That's why I think Gordon feigned the degree of his blindness. I'm guessing even the GCPD wouldn't let someone so visually impaired pack heat. (laughs) (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think he would have got into the Marines either with eyesight that bad. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, Great wrap-up. This is my all-time favorite Bruce Wayne Batman story. If there were more stories like this, I probably would have remained in my bat phase. (laughs) Stay oh, tuned, Dave, because I think the Max Allen Collins run is just as good. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary and the Legion of Super Bloggers said, As usual, I find it hard to talk about this without gushing. I really love Batman Year One, and I really love this ending. It is Gordon's story. I, for one, think both Barbara and Jim know who the mystery man is who saved their son. Gordon has to know. I think there have been some stories where a Batman is unmasked. It isn't Bruce under the cowl, and we see Gordon kind of surprised, like he was expecting someone else to be there. Yes, there is the coy, I don't have my glasses and my face is in the shadows, but I think there is just enough to give a sense of doubt so that DC could say, we don't know if Gordon knows. I also don't quite know why Catwoman had to be a part of this story, unless it was to give us one example of how Batman's presence could spur some people to throw on costumes and commit crimes. And if Miller had to choose one to do with, why not Selina? And yes, I have asked the did he sleep with these women questions as well. Like you, I think if Bruce never slept with any of them, the gossip would sleeve out and be known. So my guess is he did bet a few in the sugary walls of Stately Wayne Manor. He just wants me to play sugar walls again, damn it. Who doesn't? By the way, Chris 2218 sounds like a backup feature in Mystery in Space. In the year 2218, <laughs> only one man still trawls the barren wasteland of Earth looking for Mego dolls in the original box. Armed with his ray gun, a keen eye, and a caustic wit, he is Chris 2218. I love it. <laughs> Based, based on the Chris KL99, which I didn't even know was a thing until I got to his secret origin. <laughs> I want to show up on Justice League Action as Chris2218. <laughs> hey, if Space Cabby can be on there, right? There you go, there you go. <laughs> oh, okay. Vera Wild said, all right, one last time talking Selena. Oh, no. Don't worry. I'm not going to bring up what she uses her whip for during her off hours. Insert the custom whip moan sound effect here. Uh, there's another sound effect for you. Oh, this post, Rather, I'm going this to thank post-production Chris. stuff is going to kill me, you guys. Yeah. He's trying to get these episodes out, people. Come on. I'm definitely not doing the Vicky Vale one again. He just did it. Vicky <laughs> Vale. <laughs> Uh, uh, Vera continues rather I'm going to thank Chris for asking the question that I know has been a pretty big one for me why is she here I read this comic for the first time ages ago and I kept forgetting she was in it when the animated adaptation came out I remember it really standing out how she basically didn't impact the story and they didn't really pay off her segment in and of itself Given my jaded memories of the comics, I'd hoped it was just something lost in the translation and that there is some 
proper note her story ends on in the comic that justifies her inclusion with being covered over the course of your coverage. But alas, that's a resounding nope. <laughs> At this point, I'd, there's lots of ends. That's why I did it that way. At this point, I'd advocate to just remove her because even leaving her origin retcon and everybody's varied but emphatic feelings about it aside, there's just no need for her to be here. I'm not entirely sure that Sarah is needed either. If I'm being honest, I feel like they could have generated enough tension between Gordon and Barbara if he was just second-guessing the marriage in general or on some level regretting having a kid. Barbara has to still be there because Jim needs that family connection. But honestly, I think dropping the other female characters would have streamlined things a little. And I say that being fully aware that comics have historically been a quote-unquote boys club pretty excessively, and that's not something I like about the medium. But sometimes the stories are truly inherently about men and masculine things. There just isn't always a place to female characters into that does catwoman need to be in year one no it would probably be a, a simpler more streamlined story if she wasn't there but i don't have a problem with her inclusion i like the fact that we are seeing just a tease that other people in this world will start dressing up in costumes um, and it's certainly easier and more believable that she would be doing it rather than seeing the introduction of the Riddler or Killer Moth or somebody in a more garish costume. But she doesn't affect the story, so you could excise her from year one pretty uh, effortlessly. The thing about having Sarah Essen there, I, again, I think we talked about this, I don't like the fact that our hero has an extramarital affair when his wife is pregnant, but I do think that bit of human flaw in Gordon's character and that weakness is ultimately what allows him to accept Batman on Batman's terms. That mm. Gordon realizes that no man can be righteous and perfect and stand up for law and order the way he is. That he, he, he himself is compromised, so he's willing to compromise when it comes to somebody like Batman. I think it's just a necessary evil, perhaps, of the story. Was there another way of accomplishing that? Probably, but I don't think it was a problem. So I, I would have liked to see more from Barbara Gordon as a character, if we're being honest. Sure, I think your one could have been, uh, maybe we could have gotten a whole other issue of it, uh, just to kind of flesh out a little bit more of these scenes to get more of Bruce Wayne too. Um, but yeah, so they could have taken Catwoman away, but she doesn't bother me. I do think Sarah played a an important functional part of the story ultimately and who gordon is by the end of it you know it, it just uh, occurred to me i never thought of it before but if they had included bad girl barbara gordon pre-bad girl barbara gordon the daughter mm -hmm. in this story and had them already have her and when they moved to gotham and barbara senior for lack of a better term right. is pregnant with james then maybe maybe that would have given the mother, Barbara, somebody to talk to, it would have gave, given her more of a story angle. And if that they did go with the, you know, the idea that he has the affair with Essen, that would have made it even worse because now he's cheating. Now that he's cheating, he's cheating on three people then, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. but it, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of odd that they really just completely just shuffled Batgirl off into the corner without even knowing what they were going to do with her, you know? So, and I haven't read enough, like, Bronze Age pre-crisis Batgirl stories. Like, did she ever have much of a relationship with her mother? Like, I think her mother was supposed – I mean, I'm sure Stella could, could yeah. weigh in on this, but I think she was supposed to be deceased. You know, okay. I don't think – I think she was – I think Jim was widowed. Yeah, uh, okay, I yeah, just yeah. – I get the impression that, that when we were introduced to uh, – 
I think I think at one point in the 50s they did a story about Gordon that showed that he was married and, and he had a son named Tony mm-hmm. uh, and and his wife was still living. But by the, t- by the time we're introduced to Batgirl, I don't think they necessarily lived together. Uh, but, you know, she's, you know, Jim's widowed and, and she comes over and helps, you know, do things in the house and stuff. And yeah. it's kind of like on the TV show, you know, that same kind of yeah, although yeah. on the TV show. Gordon mentions having uh, uh, having a wife in one season, and the next season he's widowed, and you know, so it's <laughs> yeah. But I What's just, going on with Gordon's wives? I don't know. <laughs> no, but I always think of Barbara as you know Jim's daughter. She's Daddy's girl, and the whole their cop mm-hmm. connection and things like that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark Baker Wright said, I absolutely loved the mashup opening music. Is this a new theme, or was it just to add to the tribute to Adam West? Uh, I think, well, as by now you've heard that that is not the main theme for the show. I just used that for the last episode. The music itself is called Batman Evolution. Uh, it is performed by the Piano Guys. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, whatever. I actually recommend looking it up on YouTube because there is a video that accompanies it uh, where the two guys with like kind of dueling cellos um, perform in different sets that look like they're taken from the different set pieces in, in the Batman movies and media. And for those of you who don't re- remember what we're talking about, um, the music I used, and I also used this when we covered Batman's origin on Secret Origins, um, but after we did the Adam West tribute, or Chris did that at the beginning of the last episode, this piece, Batman Evolutions, it's a medley of the different themes of Batman's different eras. It starts off with a version of the Batman theme from the 1960s TV show, which, do you remember who composed that music by chance? Oh, uh, that's uh, that's uh, Neil Hefty. Okay, yeah. yeah. It's Neil Hefty's theme from the 66 show, and then it kind of blends into Danny Elfman's theme from the Tim Burton movies, and then kind of fades into, at the end, the Hans Zimmer themes from the Nolan trilogy. Uh, and it's got kind of all of these things. It's a great piece of music. I love it. Taps into all of my Batman loves. And yeah, if you're a Batman fan, I definitely check that out. You can you can download it. You can buy the music. But I would really recommend looking at the video on YouTube because it's fun. Because they do like they're like set in the Batcave and on the streets. It looks like it's it's lit like the movies. It's very cool. I'm gonna have to check that out. I haven't seen the video. Uh, the song's actually on it. I think it's actually if you got Amazon Prime, it's it's actually that album's actually free on Amazon Prime if you if you got it, so you oh, can cool. listen to it yeah. for free. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny you brought up Hans Zimmer. I was uh, again, I watched the Mask of the Phantasm. He has a credit in that as like uh, some kind of synthesizer music or something really? at some point. I have to go back and look, but his name come up, and I'm like, holy cow, that's Hans Zimmer's first Batman credit. Wow. <laughs> it's from 1993. <laughs> so. <laughs> wow, I wonder what – I'm going to have to like go to IMDb or something to look up what music credits he had before that. Like how early was that in his career? Yeah, I mean because you know, Shirley Walker and Hall, her mm-hmm. group that did the, the series, the animated series, did all the music in it. But But yeah, he did some kind of – I, I'm, I'm not a music guy, so I don't quite understand. But yeah, he did some kind of synthesizer arrangement in the in the movie. So who knew? I didn't know. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> our, our pal Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, "Great spinner rack segment. So much going on. I don't know if you ever read the J.M.D. Matei's run of Marvel's ongoing Color Conan comic, Ryan, but it's great. Sadly, it's not on Marvel Unlimited. Presumably, Dark Horse or someone having the current rights means Marvel can't show that stuff." Yeah, probably. I I did finally I picked up one copy of Savage Sword of Conan, the black and white magazine. 
Um, I got issue eleven, I think. Um, mm. It's really good. Uh, it's I'm not I'm not going to I'm not going to start collecting all of those things because uh, that'd be too much. <laughs> yeah, my my ex brother in law had a bunch of those, and I used to go through and read them. That's some good stuff. Yeah. yeah. Now, now, uh, now, the money, ba- now the money I would spend on that, I have to spend on like huggies and baby wipes. And, uh. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Uh, well, maybe you can find Batman, like DC Super Friends diapers or something, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to want to put them on him, though. I'm uh, going to save those somewhere. Need <laughs> <laughs> your collector's items. <laughs> uh, Martin continues, I read Batman Year One as it came out and remember being impressed. And yet, as with Watchmen, I've never been bothered going back for a reread. With Watchmen, it was mainly those pirates of the arid tedium, whereas with Batman Year One, it's the tone. It's also very mid-brown. I like urban cop thrillers on screen. I even enjoy comics such as GCPD. But in Batman, I want more color. So yeah, this is undoubtedly seminal stuff. But I'd really rather be reading something with the terrible trio or Calendar Man. (laughs) Oh, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Even Kite Man, you know. Uh, I doubt baby James was covered with poop as newborns have no depth perception so he not be scared. I wonder, though, if being dropped in water is equivalent to being dropped on your head, and that's why he grew up a bad seed. Give me Tony Gordon threatening to spank Barbara at Camp Smallville any day. (laughs) I'm guessing that was in an issue of the New Adventures of Superboy or something that we were not aware of. I'm guessing that. Uh, I can't recall. Was Mrs. Was Mrs. Gordon even given a name before this story? I wonder if Miller called her Barbara in the hope that would stop anyone bringing in a Barbara Gordon Batgirl or Oracle. If so, he failed, obviously. Having two kids named after their parents makes the Gordons look like unimaginative egotists. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> They're like the George Foreman of the DC Universe. <laughs> my son George Foreman in it. My son George Foreman in it. My son George Foreman. You're going to knock out the fat. But... <laughs> but uh, Alan Brennert gave Mrs. Gordon the name Barbara in mm. uh, To Kill a Legend, Detective Number 500. Yeah. The, the greatest Batman story ever told, people. <laughs> uh, and, uh, <laughs> and I will take no arguments. Uh, but uh, that's actually how he kind of got a li- into a little bit of a uh, situation with DC where they weren't uh, compensating him for that on Gotham. Uh, and they've since worked that out, thank goodness. And that's why we have a nice Batman by Alan Brennert hardcover volume. So. Uh, but yeah, he did. He he gave Mrs. Gordon, who worked at the Gotham City Library and looked quite a bit like her daughter, the name of Barbara. So there you go. A short, short comment from Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast. Congratulations to Paul and Mike on 100 episodes of Waiting for Doom. By the way, yes. Paul said, "What kind of lame podcast plays Phil Collins?" <laughs> of Waiting for Doom has played Phil Collins on their podcast before. That was intended to be a joke. So. <laughs> Uh, Lewis said, a small sidetrack, but I watched Batman and Bill, and it opened my eyes to Mr. Finger's unsung creative influence on Batman. It also made me appreciate Frank Miller's handling of Finger's iconic elements, like the origin story, Jim Gordon, and Bruce in the study with the bat crashing in. Take notes, bladder spasm Smith. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Kevin Smith loves that nickname. Yep. Uh, Lewis goes on, This has been a good set of episodes, Ryan and Chris. You shared the laughter and the pain. Particularly painful for me was Gordon's healthy affair with Essen. Jim proved himself a hero, but this infidelity with a pregnant wife was tough to stomach. Was it animal attraction, or did he think Sarah was the only one who could really know him at all? Um, 
I actually looked this up because it seems like kind of a, a popular wisdom that police, like people in law enforcement, tend to have more extramarital affairs and tend to have more divorces. I actually looked that up. There's no statistical data that they actually have more, that the divorce rate is higher for police or law enforcement. Whether or not they have affairs and don't admit to it is possible. Um, but certainly, I think in a lot of media, there does seem to be this perception that the the horror and the hardships that police, detectives, law enforcement, that they deal with on a day-to-day basis, they seek some kind of outlet for that so that they don't have to bring that home to their families. And that's why in a lot of shows and a lot of stories, you see cops having affairs. You see cops having alcohol problems and drug abuse uh, and sometimes violent tendencies and stuff like that. Um, and it certainly seems like Gordon's story is kind of playing into that trope. Now, whether that's based on reality my research, my limited research, and we're talking like 30 minutes on Google, um, reveals that that's not necessarily true, but it could be that he just, that he did, like, that it was the animal attraction, but it was also that Sarah knew what he was going through, what his day-to-day life was like, in a way that Barbara never could, and he didn't want to bring the world of Gotham City home to Barbara. He didn't even want her in the city to begin with. He wanted to keep her safe from that. So, yeah, continuing Lewis's comments, Selena's ultimate role in this mini is head-scratching. She was present for Bruce's vigilante debut, then for Batman's public introduction, but this awkward outing with the Roman, another story might have built up momentum to a climax amid Bruce and Jim. Instead, Miller just let her leave without a trace. While Commissioner Gordon is Batman's status quo ally, I think it would have been cooler post-crisis to spend more time getting there without Laud Batman fighting crime against all odds. Uh, I agree. I mean, I, I like that idea of, you know, Batman still being hunted by the police. The answer to that, I, I don't necessarily is keeping them enemies by the end of the story, but maybe having additional stories set within the first year of doing more kind of flashback mm-hmm. stories, of, of spreading this out so that we get to see more more times when there is still a task force out to hunt the Batman. But I definitely think by the end of this story, they need to be on the same side. So Yeah, and plus he ended his, his message with Against All Odds, which is another Phil Collins reference. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff R. wrote in to say, it's interesting. For a good while after year one, it was sort of its own subcontinuity rather than being the real DCU Batman origin, with much of Legends of the Dark Knight being in the year one context. But despite that, nobody ever really did a direct continuation. Even when Loeb and Sale did Long Halloween, they started after most of the rogues gallery was established, after Gordon has finished cleaning up the GCPD. And that's where most of the interesting bits of story really are. Now I'm imagining a version of DC history in which Dick Grayson died in the Crisis on Infinite Earths and year one was an actual Batman reboot uh, with a year two, year three that ran a whole year each in one of the Bat books. Year two focusing on the fall of the crime families and the rise of the Penguin with the Joker origin as a through line and year three giving the Robin and Two-Face origins. Also, I don't think I like the ending with the Joker. I don't think there's room between panels of this story for the Red Hood gang's heist leading up to the one on Ace Chemicals to be happening, especially when the Catwoman storyline has Gotham society unable to conceive of there being more than one mass criminal type out there. Hmm. Uh yeah, that's some interesting thoughts there. I mean, it kind of that's kind of a like a like a TV season. Uh, that'd be a, that'd be a good Batman TV show if they actually did a, a Batman TV show. You know, uh, <laughs> a real Batman TV show, unlike Gotham. Oh, did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Uh, 
<laughs> now we're going to get hate mail from all the people who like Gotham. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, that's fine. You guys could like Gotham. I just, I, I, it might be fine. My son's watched it and says it's actually gotten really good, and, I've actually, but I just haven't got back into it. I've heard a lot of people say, I mean, Nathaniel Wayne swears about it. He says once you accept the premise that it's, it's like an Elseworlds, it's basically a world without Batman – um, you just get a world of the cops and Batman's villains if you accept that. He said this, the, the later seasons have been really, really good. I, I, it's just not something that interests me, and I didn't think the first two episodes were any good, so I stopped. But Yeah, that's kind of me. And I just, as we've mentioned before, I really don't have a whole lot of interest in a Batman story without Batman, especially mm. – Especially with his, I mean, to me, yeah, you can accept that the villains show up before Batman, but to me, I don't want to, I just, I'm not interested in that story. Right. You know, that's, right. that's just me. But yeah, this, that sounds like a, that, uh, Jeff R's Batman uh, idea of the comics would make a great TV series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd like to see that. As far as the Joker thing, I, I don't know. I, I, I think the ending with the Joker is just kind of, yeah, I mean, technically maybe the, the Red Hood heist, you would have heard. Maybe there should have been a couple of little lines about the Red Hood heist, but I'm not sure Miller even wanted to go there, you know, with, the, with the Red Hood. Yeah, it, like if Miller started writing the next issue that took place right after that, we would not have seen the Red Hood part of Joker's origin. No. I don't it, think he would have gone that way. We probably would have got a Joker pretty similar to the to Heath Ledger Joker, probably. I think so. I think so. He just would have shown up in full costume and nobody would know his origin. Yeah, yeah, me too. Ward Hill Terry said, listening to this podcast is a fun way to analyze a story I haven't read in decades. It still looks gorgeous. However, many parts of the story are questionable. I agree with Vera and others about the role of Selina. Disregarding her proclivities, her part in the story seems odd. This story is Gordon's, but it's about his relationship with his wife and girlfriend, not his relationship with Batman. I agree that the Sarah character isn't necessary. Gordon is facing many moral dilemmas at work. Why add a love interest? Batman is almost written out of this story, as is Bruce Wayne. To wit, how does Bruce slash Batman learn so much about the inner workings of the corrupt GCPD? How does he learn so much about the crime families in Gotham? Why does he show up at the Gordons when he does? He had time to put on some armor. Could he not have put on disguise, sunglasses, false beard, fake scar, etc.? Wayne Industries, where did that come from? Has Bruce been building a business portfolio all these years? How does he pick which industry to buy? He can't be starting these places from scratch, even by being a sole investor. I can believe Bruce would call a talent agency to hire a model or actress for the afternoon. As an actor, I've done a lot of weird jobs. Sit here on this side of the pool, don't look at the camera, wear this corporate logo, and wave. He could probably utilize half a dozen agencies so as never to have the same girl twice. Yeah, again, I, like we could have gotten a lot more stories set in this era and find out and have it flesh out who Bruce Wayne is and the this Detective Comics that was story that like hinted at some of this. But yeah, it would have been interesting to see um, how he learns more about the GCPD and the crime families. I mean, we do see an alliance between Bruce and Harvey Dent. Uh, he could get some information there. Some of this might be public knowledge, or he just goes undercover, picks up some things. Yeah, I, I mean, the more that I think about it, I would have liked to see, I would have liked to see some in-between chapters where we really get Bruce doing the detective work, doing like laying down the foundation of who his front is when he's not fighting crime, and like the you know the introduction of Matches Malone and things like that. And I mean, there are tons of of stories to play in this world. So yeah. 
Well, just wait a few years till we get to uh, Detective Comics issue zero because Chuck Dixon actually does some of that stuff mm-hmm. in that issue. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a really that's a great issue. That's like my favorite of the the zero issues was yeah. that one because it it actually sets up some stuff that I think they they cherry picked for the Nolan films too. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the irredeemable shag himself said, loved every episode of your year one coverage. Superbly done. Almost maybe wistful for my Batman phase. Almost. Ah, Batman phase. Ah. That's going to be a dance move. We need to do that at like the next <laughs> gathering of just come up with the dance called the Batman phase. It can be like the new version of Bat Dance. <laughs> uh, it's like the electric slide, but with geeks, you know, <laughs> And Shag continues, as a fellow balding man, thank you for playing so much Phil Collins. Represent! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Edo Bosnar said, it's way late, but I just finally read year one. Found a good soul here who lent it to me. I thought it would be a good idea to read it before getting around to rereading year two in anticipation of your coverage of that story in upcoming episodes. My general impression is that it's rather good, but as you and others have noted, it's basically a Gordon story rather than a Batman story. And in that regard, even though I know it was supposed to rewrite Batman's origin and early history in post-crisis DC, I simply cannot think of it as the real story that counts, i.e. it's just not a part of my Batman headcanon. As with another popular Miller Batman story, Dark Knight Returns, it seems more like a really well-written and intriguing Elseworlds installment. That's fair. I've heard other people say kind of the same thing. And, uh, and incidentally, I totally agree with Vera above. Selina and Catwoman never should have been in this. All of the bits in which she appears could easily have been removed, and it would have absolutely no impact on the overall story. And that would have removed the problematic retooling of her backstory. Yeah, in hindsight, maybe. I think the general consensus is Catwoman should have been left out of Batman Year One. <laughs> yeah. If no, if for no other reason than it changed, like we wouldn't have had all of that debate and discussion about whether or not she's a dominatrix or a prostitute, or if the two are different or the same. But we would have missed out on all of that. <laughs> <laughs> and all been the better for it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> And our last comment came from Al Sedano, who said, I was thinking about what you guys were saying about the climax of the issue with Batman saving Gordon's son. And while I agree with most of what you were saying about why Gordon and his wife don't reveal Bruce's identity, I wonder if there is more to it. When he saves James Jr., he's doing more than just saving a baby. He's doing it with no mask. He is doing it with the knowledge that his career as Batman could be over. If Gordon or his wife either try to arrest him or reveal his identity, then it's all over. Batman is showing Gordon that saving a life is more important to him than those consequences. I have to wonder if at that moment, Batman changed in Gordon's mind from vigilante to a hero. If he was just a vigilante, then even if Gordon didn't want to, he might have had no choice but to do something about it with the evidence right there in front of him. Gordon viewing him now as a, in parentheses, superhero, might be motive enough for him to ignore that he knows who Batman really is. Yeah, I, you know, that's I, that's kind of where I was coming from. I mean, that that you, you put it better, Al, than I think I did, but I think I think that's part of it is that it's not just the the fact that he did it for Gordon, but that he would just do it, period, that he would risk his whole everything he'd built up for that. You know, I think I think that's a good point. Yeah, Uh, you're right that this isn't really the origin of Batman like Batman Begins was. This is more like the story of Gotham City during the first year of Batman with Gordon as the focal point. I think that is why they included Catwoman. Your thoughts of how well she was used may vary. As evident by all the letters we got, yes, uh, showing his influence on other citizens. 
Going on with that, your conversation made me wish the creative team had done another four-part story, Bruce Wayne, the early years. Oh, yeah, that would have been really sweet. And we could have used that, obviously, to Mm -hmm. kind of solidify what was going on with these different (laughs) comics. Uh, So who got more mileage out of less? Was it Jeff Loeb with this story, Long Halloween, Dark Victory, etc., or Jeff Johns out of that one Alan Moore Green Lantern story? (laughs) Well, Jeff uh, Jeff Johns got like seven years of Green Lantern comics out of that story. So true, true. Yeah, I think Jeff Johns wins in that regard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> well, uh, that is it for the listener feedback for this section. Um, that's going to be all for this episode. Hopefully, we will be back on a fairly regular schedule. Um, <laughs> I can make no promises. Um, but we're certainly going to try. And the next episode, we will be back to Batman with issue 408, The New Adventures of Batman, The Return of Max Allen Collins, and the brand new post-crisis origin of Jason Todd Robin. This is one we've been, <laughs> we've been teasing. This is, this is going to be the watershed moment for Chris. This one might, it'll be it'll be the best or the worst or possibly the last episode of the podcast. So yes, it's there may be a you know this may be the you know the nightcast no more you know like the John <laughs> Romita Spider Man you know I'm, I'm I'm throwing my microphone into the trash can walking away you know. <laughs> You've got Superman movie minute now. You don't need this show. <laughs> Yes, that's something I can be completely positive about. Is the <laughs> Superman movie? Man. No, I mean I'm, I'm gonna, like I said before, I'm gonna really try to give give this story a fair shake. And I think it's, if nothing else, it, it, it's it's going to be interesting to examine. I, I'm really I'm really having a lot of uh, I don't know if it's say fun. I just find it fascinating to try to think. Okay, what was going on in the Batman office? Mm-hmm. You know what what phone calls were being had or had or not being had what conversations were uh, carried on with the creators uh, what wasn't said what should have been said what should have been <laughs> what information should have been offered up to the different creative teams um, you know this is this is far, a far cry from uh, the superman summit as they were known during the the great uh, triangle number days of, of mike carlin you know uh, so yeah it's it's it, I am really interested to see how this. I have not read, reread this story in years. I have not reread it yet. In anticipation of this, I kind of want to come to it as we as we get to it. And so, yeah, I'm really I'm really interested to see what I think this time out. This time might be the last unless I make it all too clear. I need you so. Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at SupermatesPod or email me at SupermatesPodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening.